so we have this incredible account in the kings in the Old Testament. The Syrian king wanted to kill the king of Israel. God reveals the plot to Elisha. He informs the king. The king escapes. It happens multiple times such that the king of Assyria, or the king of Syria, excuse me, says, who's the spy among us? And his servants say, king, there's no spy. The Lord reveals to Elisha the words that you say in your bedroom. The king says, well, we've got to kill Elisha then. And so the whole army converges upon the town that Elisha and his servant are in. And in the morning, the servant wakes up and goes outside and he, he sees the army around the city and he says, understandably, we're dead. Elisha says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, that doesn't make any sense because it's just Elisha, his servant, and some townspeople and the whole Syrian army. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Thousands of battle-ready heavenly angels actually surrounded the Syrian army. You see, this situation actually isn't what it seems. <laughs> they, they think they're done, the servant does, and humanly speaking, according to what's in front of them, they are done. But that's actually not the case at all. When God opened the eyes of the servant to see the situation as it really was, when he saw with eyes of faith what was really going on, my, oh my, I guarantee you that changed everything for that servant that morning. Don't you know? Here's what I'm getting at. Like the servant... You need eyes of faith to see things as they really are. And my prayer this morning is that God uses this sermon to do just that. Here's what I hope you see. Christian, no matter how things might seem at times, you are blessed. Over the top, beyond measure, blessed. What does that mean? What does it look like? What about all the difficulties in your life that doesn't seem to be blessed? We'll get there. And then non-Christian. No matter how things might seem at times, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you are not blessed. What does that mean? What does that look like? What about your genuine efforts to live a good life? We'll get there. Would you open up your Bibles, Bibles to Haggai chapter 2? And if you're new with us this morning, we are in a series in the books of Haggai and Malachi. 
Uh, they're towards the end of the Old Testament. It's page 791 if you're using the blue Bibles there in the racks in front of you. And if you open up to Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, just turn left three books. We join Israel today on a really special day. Today is a special ceremony celebrating laying the foundation of the temple. Now, just some reminders. Chapter 1 begins on August 29th of 520. Haggai rebukes Israel because they're busy about their own lives and not the work of the Lord. So to them, building the house of God is just one more thing that they've got to fit into their already busy schedule. And it's just a bother and a burden. You don't really have time for it. Haggai rebukes them. They repent and they determine to build. Chapter 2 begins on October 17th of the same year. Haggai encourages them not to grow discouraged and to keep working, keep building. That's last week. And then our text today is December 18th of the same year. And what's happened is that now... The foundation of the Lord's temple is laid, and, and now they've, they've come together to celebrate. So it's actually a, a huge gathering, and, and everybody's here, and the priests are here, and the governor's here, and, and the people are all here, and it's a big day, it's a new day, and, and Haggai has this word. Pick up in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, that's December 18th, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Priests answered and said, no. And Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? Priests answer and said, it does become unclean. And Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. The point of this section is that Israel's spiritual impurity has made everything she's done up until this point unacceptable to God. Let me just show you that. God reveals this to the people by having Haggai ask the priests two questions. So just look at verse 11 again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. The priests in the Old Testament were charged to teach the people the law of God. So Haggai asks them a question. Question number one, verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Let me just give you some Old Testament background so that this isn't just gibberish. Uh, The right and proper worship of God in the Old Testament revolved around the temple. It was there that sacrifices and offerings were given. And in order for those sacrifices and offerings to be pleasing to God, both the offerings and those bringing the offerings had to be 
ceremonially clean. And this is actually what makes up a lot of the book of Leviticus, laws and case studies on what's clean and unclean and how to offer acceptable worship at the temple. So in this question, a type of offering is in view that isn't entirely burned up on the altar, and the person who makes the offering has some leftover meat to take to his family. So he carries this holy meat, just between you and me, all meat is holy. Actually, this is holy meat because it's fit for worship. He carries this holy meat in the fold of his garment. And the question is, if the fold of his garment touches some other food, does that food then become holy? The answer is no. Holiness is not transferable. Just because something is holy or clean, just because that thing touches something else, it doesn't make the other thing holy or clean. Now, there's a second question. Verse 13. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Now, if somebody touched a dead body, that's one of the things that made them ceremonially unclean in the Old Testament. So the question is, if somebody unclean touches something else, does the thing touched become unclean? And the answer is yes. Uncleanness is transferable. If something unclean touches something else, that other thing becomes unclean. And whether you know it or not, you actually already get the answers to these two questions. When an oily finger touches a clean wall, does the oily finger become clean? No. The oily finger makes the wall dirty. The dirty contaminates the clean. The clean does not purify the dirty. Now, before we go on, let me just say something. These Levitical laws about clean and unclean, they may seem arbitrary and strange and meaningless to you. But the spiritual reality that they illustrate is anything but. What they're illustrating is the timeless truth that you have to be spiritually pure to worship God. If you are not spiritually pure, then everything you do and everything you offer to God will be contaminated. If you're spiritually dirty, everything you touch becomes dirty and in turn displeasing to our holy God. And that's the point. Look at verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with his people. And with this nation before me declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. The Lord is saying, listen, guys. Listen. Up until now, your spiritual impurity, your spiritual faithlessness, your spiritual uncleanness, it's caused everything you do to be unclean and unacceptable to me. 
And, and listen, Israel, I'm, I'm not just talking about your offerings. I'm, I'm talking about your whole life. Every work of your hands is unacceptable to me. Why? Because even though Israel's not been giving herself over to gross idolatry like previous generations, they'd still been living for themselves, busy about their own lives and families and hobbies while the house of the Lord lies in ruins and shambles. That's faithlessness. However, there's been a change. Look at 15. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. You know, there are some days that are just momentous. Your high school graduation, your college graduation, your, your first day at a real job. Some days are like memorials that you never forget. And God wants this day to be like that for them. Why? Because he wants them to see the difference between what life was like before they submitted themselves to God and what life is like after they submitted themselves to God. Verse 15. Now consider, from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? So, hey, before, when you weren't building my house, when you were busy about your own house and your own life and your own hobbies and your own families and your own stuff, how did it go for you? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. This is farming language. When they expected 20 measures of grain, they actually only got 10. Same with the fruit of the vine. When one came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. Their crops and their vine, they're just not producing. Why? Does Israel not know how to farm? No! They're under the curse of God. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. He said the same thing in chapter 1. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. 
Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth below has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and the grain and the new wine and the oil and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. This is the curse of God. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 28. God promises Israel if she's faithful, she'll be blessed beyond measure. But if she's not, she'll be cursed. He'll send terrible and painful realities designed to bring about repentance. And praise God, here in Haggai, Israel has repented. And so, bless, guess what? From this day onward, she'll be blessed. Verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? The answer is no, by the way. It's winter. The seed's been sown. Crop has been so poor from all the previous years. There's no leftover seed. No, there's no seed in the barn, Lord. We've got nothing in our Dave Ramsey emergency fund. (laughs) He goes on. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the oil tree, and the oil tree, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. Up until now, Israel's crops have yielded zip, zero, zilch. But from this day on, I will bless you. You don't see it yet, God says. But you are now under my covenant blessing. It is a new day and you are blessed. Now what in the world does this text have to do with us? Let me tell you. It's teaching us that God's blessing is on all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the point. This is a new day for Israel, isn't it? Before they laid the foundation of the temple, what was the direction of their lives? Godward or selfward? Living for His glory or living for lesser things? It was selfward. It was lesser things. Now, of course, please hear this. They wouldn't have said that, nor would they even have necessarily thought that, but it's true, and their spiritual faithlessness made them abhorrent to God. Their spiritual impurity made everything they touched and everything they did displeasing to Him, unclean and unholy, and as a result, they are under His curse, but by the grace of God, The word of God comes to them through Haggai and they finally see their sin, they repent of their sin, and they trust his promises. And the evidence is that they get to work on the temple. And now they're blessed. So from this day forward, they are blessed. And let me tell you, all the more so are you. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ. This new day, friends, this new day and the blessings of God, these are just a shadow of what comes through Jesus Christ. Here's the reality. 
we are all spiritually unclean and unfit to be in God's presence. Our lives that we think are relatively good, they are not good. We have not loved the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Our efforts to live honorably, as good as they may seem, the Bible compares them to filthy rags. And because of this, we are under his curse, the end of which is eternal damnation. Separation from God in eternity. And that is why, precisely why, we need Jesus. Because Jesus does the impossible. He makes the dirty clean. An unclean leper begged Jesus for mercy. Jesus touched him and the leper became clean. A woman made unclean by an issue of blood for 12 years touched Jesus and immediately she is made clean. In Jesus, Leviticus is turned on its head. When the unclean come into contact with Jesus, the unclean are made clean. And this takes us to the cross where the most amazing reversals happen. On the cross, Jesus takes our spiritual uncleanness upon himself and he gives us his righteousness as a gift. Further, on the cross, the covenant curse of death that we deserve, judgment, that fell on Jesus and the covenant blessings of God, life in the coming age that only he deserves are given to us. Brothers and sisters, this new day in this passage, this day which God wants for his people to remember forever. Hey, before this day you were cursed and after this day you are blessed forever. This points us to when we turned from our sin and trusted in Jesus Christ and were saved. When you came to Christ, everything changed for you. Brothers and sisters. Everything. You went from a child of the devil to a child of God. You went from unclean to clean. You went from hell bound to heaven bound. You went from cursed to blessed. You are blessed. Blessed with his acceptance. Eternal Unchanging acceptance. Blessed with His grace, forgiving grace, empowering grace. Blessed with His presence. Blessed with His promises. Blessed with His discipline. Blessed with His church. Blessed with His great commission. Blessed with His empowerment. Blessed unbelievably, incomparably, eternally, unstoppably. Blessed. If you are here this morning as a non-Christian, please hear me. Blessing only comes through Jesus Christ. No other way. If you would be blessed, the only way is to recognize that you are not blessed and to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as sufficient to pay the price for your sins. Turn from your sin and trust in Him and receive the forgiveness of your sins.
be reconciled to your creator and ruler and maker and judge and father. And you will be blessed. Now, I know it doesn't always seem like we're blessed, Christian. Maybe you don't feel very blessed this morning. That brings us to our next section. Would you pick up with me in verse 20? The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. This is the same day. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What is this? It's a promise God's people desperately needed to hear. God is going to act. God is going to put down all his enemies. And God is going to establish his king as king over all. And think about Israel. Here they are. Just a small group of Israelites eking out enough to live at the mercy of the Persian Empire. And yet they've just been told, from this day forward, I will bless you. You are blessed. Really? Yes. Really. Because of what God will soon do. First, he will judge the nations. Verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and to overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Now, you, you may not pick up on this, but in these few verses, the Lord essentially calls to mind all of his triumphs over the godless nations in the past. Words like overthrow call to mind his overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. Destruction calls to mind his destruction of the Canaanite cities when Israel took the land. Horses, riders, and chariots call to mind the destruction of Pharaoh and his army in the Exodus amidst the Red Sea. Every man falling by the sword of his brother calls to mind the defeat of the Midianites at the hand of Gideon's 300. God is basically saying, just like I've done in the past, I am going to triumph over my enemies. You do not have to be afraid. You do not have to worry. I will judge the nations. And I will raise up my king to rule over you at that point. Verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, 
And I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, to understand the significance of this verse, you really need to know who Zerubbabel is. Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah, so he's a ruler. And he's also the son of Shealtiel, which means he's the grandson of Jeconiah. And Jeconiah was the last king of Judah in the line of David. When Nebuchadnezzar burned down Jerusalem, he carted off Jeconiah to Babylon. Now, what does God promise his grandson, Zerubbabel? That he's going to make him like a signet ring, which a signet ring is a sign of royal authority. Kings wear signet rings. Now, to get the full picture of what's going on here, I just need to read you a snippet from Jeremiah 22. You have to turn there, but just let me read to you from Jeremiah 22. This prophecy is to King Jeconiah before the kingdom falls to Babylon. And listen to what's said. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, which is another name from Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Though he were like a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of the Chaldeans, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. None of your offspring will succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Brothers and sisters, When Israel was exiled to Babylon, it seemed as though the Davidic line was done. The significance of this promise to Zerubbabel is that it is not done. God is not done with this line. And when he judges the nations, he will exalt a descendant of David to rule over his people. Now, isn't that encouraging? Actually, encouraging is not a strong enough word. (laughs) I guarantee you, that is a life-transformative truth. If I'm an Israelite, this changes everything. Yeah, life may not be easy in Jerusalem right now. But no matter. Because God's favor is upon us. And God's king will soon reign. By the way, I'm not talking about the nation of Israel right now. I'm talking about the nation of Israel before Christ came. It's important to keep that in mind. So here's my question. When does this all go down? Who's this king? When are the nations going to be judged? Well, let's start with the king. The king is Jesus Christ. In Matthew's gospel, this is particularly clear. In one one, he says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he traces out David's line. When he does so, he mentions Jeconiah twice. Like, don't miss this. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, 
on and on he goes until he gets to Jesus Christ. Christ is the descendant of David that God promised to make like a signet ring on his hand. Christ is the promised king. Now, when, when, when do those promises of judgment, when do those come to pass? When does that happen? When does judgment fall? Did you notice the shaking language of the text? Look at verse 21 again. Verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. That's language just like last week's from chapter 2. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory. Hebrews 12 grabs this shaking language and applies it to the end of the world and the establishment of Christ's everlasting kingdom. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. This judgment in our text today, all this overthrowing of the nations, this putting down of the enemies of God, this happens when Jesus comes back. Revelation 19, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them. With a rod of iron, he will tread the winepress uh, wine of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is where all things are heading. The world as we know it, with its nations and its empires including the nation of Israel today, are all temporary. It is only a matter of time before God shakes both the heavens and the earth and puts down all rule and authority and every single soul that does not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, they will be overthrown like Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed like the Canaanites in God's path, swallowed up like Pharaoh's army, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. All right, I want to I sew some threads together for you and help you make some important connections. Christian, you are blessed. That's the point of 10 through 19. 
ever since you came to Christ, from that day onward, God's covenant love is upon you. You are over the top blessed. But it doesn't always seem like that. No, it doesn't. Humanly speaking, according to what's in front of you, life often stinks. And what I want you to know is that keeping your eye on what's coming, the eternal kingdom that Jesus will bring, this is what you must keep your eye on in order for you to have the spiritual sight to see your life as it really is, blessed. Brothers and sisters, keeping your eye on the return of Christ, keeping your eye on the kingdom to come, keeping your eye on the victory that is coming, the rewards that are coming, the joy that is coming. This makes all the difference in the world in how you experience life. Just like that servant in Elisha's day when Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes and he saw, holy smokes, the mountains surrounded. It changed everything. So too does it change everything for us when we think about the kingdom that is coming. It changes everything. It gives hope. This world is not the end. Are you poor? Are you often in physical pain? Is your job terrible and your boss a jerk? These things are not the end. It gives happiness. Few times a year were my kids more happy than when they were little, anticipating the joy of Christmas morning. How happy would we be if we had childlike faith to keep an eye on the return of Christ and all the bounty that will be ours on that beautiful morning? It gives perspective. You know, no matter what you are experiencing or will experience, your life here is a vapor. And eternity is everlasting. It is freeing. Living with eternity in view frees us to let go of this world's goods, to let go of clamoring for a good reputation, to let go of our obsession, to eke out every ounce of pleasure now instead of eking out pleasure to come. It gives meaning. Meaning to the hard things. Do you realize that even in your suffering, you are blessed? Even in your suffering, you are blessed. Suffering weans you from the pleasure of the world, refines you and causes you to long for Christ and matures you. It gives purpose. What is life about? Really, what is life about? Building Christ's church. There's two aspects to that. Evangelism, bringing people to Christ. And discipleship, our mutual care, protection, edification, upbuilding of one another. That's why we continue to believe in and affirm the importance of meaningful membership. Because it's part of the great commission. Building Christ's church. Christian, all of these things come into focus Clear, sharp 
focus when you have an eye on eternity. When I see a miserable Christian, I know it's a Christian who isn't looking at life with an eternal perspective. When I see an ineffective Christian, I know it's a Christian who isn't looking at life with an eternal perspective. When I see a Christian who thinks church is just another thing on the calendar, I know it's a Christian who isn't looking at life from an eternal perspective. Brothers and sisters, work to set your eye on the grace that is to be brought to you at the return of Jesus Christ. Doing so changes everything. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's follow our Savior's example. Pray with me. Father in heaven, give us eyes to see. That's my prayer. Give us eyes to see who we really are. Blessed. Blessed beyond compare. We are your people upon whom your favor will always rest. And our king is coming soon. And he will rule over us in righteousness and in peace and in joy. Grant us grace to keep on keeping on. For his sake, for our good, and for the joy of all the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.